welcome to Of Dust and Divinity, an ongoing conversation with makers, thinkers, and doers, where we ask big questions of the small things. And my mom was pretty key in that. She's a nurse, and she's always told me that it's my job to know my medical history. It's my job to understand my conditions. It's my job to know what medications I'm taking and why, and be a very informed patient. Unfortunately, though, sometimes doctors even look suspiciously on that, you know, and that is a very frustrating thing when, you know, you are just trying to get help. And yet doctors are looking at you with that eyebrow raised like, hmm, are you exaggerating? I don't know if I believe you, you know, and just feeling like, like you not only have to go through life sick, but then you have to convince people that you are in fact sick. And that is just a, an awful feeling. Of Dust and Divinity is an ongoing conversation carrying threads from one episode to the next. Like... If the podcast itself were a table in the back corner of your local pub, and each round of guests are like friends gathered at the table in free-flowing conversation. At the table with me today are beautiful souls who I cannot wait for you to meet. Here they are. All right. Well, uh, my name is Layla Lopes. I've been married to my husband, Jared, for about 10 and a half years now. Uh, We have three beautiful little babies. Um, Elijah is nine years old. Eden is seven. And Ella, um, our littlest baby, is going to be two in November. Um, And I know they're not really babies anymore, but I'll always forever call them my babies. Um, I've been a registered nurse in my beautiful home state of Oregon for over 13 years. And um, I work primarily in the oncology setting or cancer care. Um, I am just about 36 years old, um, which seems strange because that feels kind of oldish, like almost 40, and I feel like that I should be more adulty and wise than I feel. Um, but I've gained all my book knowledge formally from the University of Portland. I got my bachelor's degree in the science of nursing or BSN. Um, over the years, I've obtained a couple extra certifications in nursing um, specialties, um, informally, though, I like to learn all the things through audiobooks. Um, I commute to work, and so I have a lot of time each day to and from. Um, I Anywhere from like classic literature, books that I don't remember that I was supposed to read in high school, um, to autobiographies, and then really anything in between that someone recommends, I'll, I'll dive in. Um, I identify as a Christian, um, but what that means has really evolved over the years since I first became a believer in um, 2007. So I started as like getting to know that there actually is a God and learning about what I think he expects from me, um, evolving to learning really who Jesus is and what he has done and who I am in light of the good news of the gospel and um, how that just causes me to relate to those around me. So um, if I could clone myself, one of me being who I am, being a married mother and an oncology nurse, which I love, um, the other would maybe be a long-term medical missionary overseas. All right. Hi, guys. My name is Heather. Thanks for having me today. Um, I am currently medically retired due to disability, but before that, I worked as a certified peer recovery specialist for the state of Maryland. It's basically a recovery coach for people seeking recovery from mental health and or addiction issues. I am a wife and a stepmom to two great kids. They're 14 and 10 years old. I'm a white female in my mid-30s, and I do not feel old enough to have a teenager. I have a bachelor's degree in 
psychology and have worked in the behavioral health field throughout my professional life prior to retirement. I am a follower of Jesus, and my faith is the most important aspect of my life and is the lens through which I view the world. Um, if I could clone myself and do two occupations, at least one of us would be healthy and would be working as a full-time artist. And I'm your host, Caben Kramer. I'm a fourth-generation California farmer farming walnuts on fertile concow land along the edge of the Feather River. I'm a husband and father to two awesome kids, identify as a white male, and I'm loving my 30s. Formally, I'm educated as an engineer, though I've never actually practiced engineering as a profession. Identify as a follower of Jesus and find the teachings and lifestyle of Jesus attractive. If I could clone myself and do two occupations, my clone would probably be a cultural anthropologist. Awesome. Well, I am super excited to get into this with you guys. And before we really get started, and, and this is um, on topic as well, but I just wanted to pause for a moment and acknowledge, Heather, that you referenced that this weekend is the one-year anniversary of your father's passing. So yeah. I just wanted to start just by checking in with you. How how are you doing? I'm, I'm actually, I'm good. Um, you know, it's, it, it's kind of strange to say that the experience with my dad's passing was like a positive experience because that makes it sound like I'm happy that he's gone, which I'm not. But um, overall, like there's a lot of peace in it. And um, my sisters and spouses and everything are coming up and we are all going to plant a tree with my dad's ashes in order to honor him on the date of his death. So I think that's kind of beautiful. I don't know what forces of the universe align for me to want to have this conversation right now, not knowing what it was for you. Isn't it so interesting how that works? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I hope that this space stays honoring to you and your story as well. So, um, hold us accountable to that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. All right. As, as we open up this conversation, I just want to read a few lines from a Mary Oliver poem. And it's called The Uses of Sorrow. Someone I loved once gave me a box full of darkness. It took me years to understand that this, too, was a gift. And that's the whole poem. Wow. Ooh, I like it. Yeah. I like that a lot. Yeah, so I just... As you guys are people who live in this world that's much closer to the veil than mine, what is what? It, how are you relating to this right now? <laughs> yeah, and it's hard. I think um, having not personally dealt, um, I wouldn't say that I'm a person who suffers a great deal. I guess, and so. Um, it's difficult to relate in that way and not feeling that I've been given, you know, a great many, what did she say? Boxes of darkness. Mm -hmm. Um, but I also recognize that that is so, that is so good. And it's so true. Um, that, I mean, sorrow is useful. It mm. really is useful. Um, and I guess the ways that I've 
suffered are really a lot of time um, just more empathetically. Um, I hate, I hate suffering. It really weighs on me. Um, but boy, I really, I think I have seen that it is, um, it is useful. It's, it's useful in refining myself. And I think that I've seen it um, refine those that suffer too. I really like what you said about, um, about there being good that comes out of suffering. Mm-hmm. I think that's very true. I personally really like that poem. I think that it is um, short and sweet and to the point and contains a lot of truth. Um, I know for me, living with chronic illness, so I've been chronically ill since I was 17, and living with chronic illness um, definitely is difficult at times. And I, um, I heard someone once say, so this is not original, but I heard someone who has the same conditions that I have say that they have been afflicted with the gift of chronic stillness. And that just really struck me when I heard them say that because the words afflicted with a gift, you know, kind of <laughs> are in conflict with one another. But I think mm, that that is yeah. the most accurate way to kind of describe describe that you know like um when you encounter this kind of suffering there's every day is hard but there is a beauty in the level of dependence on the lord for each and every day and each and every moment if that makes sense yeah can you can you can you talk a little bit more about what you've been learning about stillness and illness? Sure. Um, So the condition that I have, well, one of the conditions, one of the few that I have um, causes very severe muscle weakness. And so there are, you know, there, it fluctuates. So there are times where I can accomplish much more than, and other times where I literally, the only thing that I can do is blink and breathe. And that's like the extent of my energy. Um, And I know that that sounds like such a ridiculous exaggeration, but that's like the literal truth. Like I can only lay in my bed and breathe and blink and that's about it. Um, And during those times, you know, it's, it's been a struggle to, you know, I've gone through all kinds of stages of like, okay, frustration and the pity party, poor me. Oh, I can't do anything. But I have landed in a place of utilizing that time of stillness where I'm not able to do much of anything else, um, to pray, to listen to my Bible app, because it'll read it out loud to me, um, to sing worship songs in my head, even though I can't sing them out loud at times. Um, And you know, I've, I've had to adapt a much slower pace to life than most people are used to. And I've found that a lot of people seem to be very, very intensely uncomfortable with stillness. And I think that that's kind of evident in recent times, you know, with quarantine and people having to stay home and be, you know, not out and about doing their busy stuff. I think we stay busy in order to just distract ourselves. But when we're still, that's kind of when all the stuff comes up, you know, and Mm -hmm. so people avoid that at all costs. But when you have no choice, 
there's actually like such a beauty in becoming comfortable with that stillness and finding God in the midst of that. I was just thinking that I not actually not very long ago, I had come across some, um, it was like the idea of um, doing nothing. And um, like Heather said, how uh, I don't know if it's just our culture, or it may just be kind of a global thing, but it is really difficult to do nothing. But I think it's, mm. I don't want to say the wrong thing, but I think um, there's like a saying, I want to say maybe the it's like Italians or something. They say um, like la dolce far niente or something. It's the sweetness of doing nothing. And mm. um, like what, that's such a cool way to view it. Um it's a sweet thing really to do, to do nothing. But, um, Jared and I talk a lot about that when, um, you know, doing nothing, when things get quiet, oh man, all the junk kind of bubbles up. And I think that's why we have such a hard time doing nothing. It's just, oh my gosh, put, put the music on or put a TV on and even just in the background, you know, just Mm -hmm. keep your mind occupied when I'm just sitting here, I'm going to reach for my phone and Mm -hmm. go to Instagram or Facebook or just start flipping through things, reading things, just anything. Actually just uh, the other day deleted my Facebook and Instagram apps off my phone Mm. because I found that I don't like doing nothing, but I I would like to um, get better at that. Yeah. So talk more about about that idea because it's echoed through history from you know christian mystics and um, buddhists and other wisdom traditions this idea that like there seems to be a bridge between silence and the soul that is really scary for the busyness of you know what um young would have described as the ego um in in your experiences can you talk a little bit more about what that's looked like practically as silence comes into the space and then what comes across that bridge in those times of silence? Uh, for me, I, um, I'm an Enneagram type five and I, um, I like thinking about things and, um, and that's, yeah, it's my thinking time. That's what (laughs) a lot of my, um, Sometimes I cry actually when I sit quietly by myself, and that may be why I guess culturally a lot of um, a lot of us don't like to do it because you start thinking about things that are maybe painful or sad or um, but I don't actually mind it. I'd like to get better at it. I think when I first started. Um really trying to intentionally be more like quiet, I guess I would say. Um, It was probably about four years ago. I actually, um, my husband and I decided that we were going to get rid of our smartphones and go to dumb phones. And do you know how ridiculously difficult they make that these days? It was insane like it was way more expensive to have a dumb phone than it was to have a smartphone so um (laughs) (laughs) which just doesn't make sense but um you know i really during that time frame i i didn't have a smartphone for two years and now i do and i wouldn't like to go back to not having one but i will say i learned (laughs) quite a bit during that time Mm. and the thing that was most surprising to me was that like my thoughts were so 
fast. Like I would be thinking about something and I'd be like, oh, I've got to look up this or that or the other. And every spare moment was like I had to fill that time um, because I could. Like I'd be sitting in a traffic light like, okay, don't take out your phone. Duh, not a good idea. But yeah. I would be like, oh, I got to look up that recipe for such and such, you know, and yeah. and it's like this compulsion to to take care of that while, you know, while I'm just sitting here thinking about it. Mm. And when I got rid of my smartphone and got rid of the opportunity to do those things, um, it was really surprising, like how, how much I realized, like, okay, this was causing me to like my thoughts to be all over the place. I felt super disorganized. I felt super overwhelmed and distracted. Do you feel like because of those periods of silence, you know yourself better? Yeah, I think so. Actually, most definitely. You can't you can't know somebody if you don't hear them, you know? And I think when we're just constantly distracted, you know, with input, you can't hear your own self, you know? And uh, like, Kevin, if I could never hear you, if I've never heard your heart or, you know, I, I could never say that I actually know you, you know? And so I think when we sit with ourselves, you just, I ask myself a lot how, and this may be part of being a type five, it takes me like six days to determine how I feel about something. Mm. And uh, <laughs> I just wouldn't be able to do that if I didn't have the space to like really ask myself that. Mm. I think for me, I would actually have to say in, from my experience, no, simply because I'm, I'm really, really intentional during those time frames to focus on praying and scripture and those kind of things because when I, I found that when I do that, that is when the time becomes uplifting and encouraging to me. And when I kind of just let myself think about my life, my past, this, that, or the other, it's not a time of healing or, you know, like it, it kind of sends me into discouragement. Yeah. I, I asked that question because it seems to me that the pitch for technology right, which you guys both kind of identified as being a, a large source of distraction. You know, technology promises like, hey, this is going to make your life better. You're going to be more connected. You're going to have everything you need. And it seems that as human beings, I mean, we could trace it all the way back to, you know, like the Luddites and other people like that. But like, there's been this sense of like, does technology take something from what it means to be human? And it sounds a little bit like there might be a hint towards this thread that yeah this idea of like perpetual distraction might actually flatten the human experience instead of expand it yes i i agree with that i'm laughing because my husband and i have this conversation all the time he's very much like he's a type five as well actually and very um intellectual and into technology and advancements and all of that kind of thing. And I'm kind of like, hey, let's go live in the woods and, you know, build a fire. As long as it has a dishwasher, I'll be okay. You know, like, <laughs> I um, <laughs> I found that I think that the more quote unquote connected we are, the less connected we actually are. I think it's an illusion, but that's just my, uh, my view of it. So, mm. yeah. No, I would agree too. Um, 
it's hard. I think, um, you know, humans are just, we are such social creatures. And I think technology and um, social media, I mean, even the name social media, it's under this guise of like connectivity. And, um, but it's such a false connection. And um, I think it's really a wedge. I, it, I mean, we've all gone to a restaurant and have looked around. It's amazing. Or standing in line somewhere or sitting and waiting for your table or whatever. And, and you just look and everybody's got that glow on their face because they're looking down at their screen. And mm. I'm always just, I, it kind of is heartbreaking. And I, and I've certainly been guilty of doing the same. And I really try and be aware of my, um, I think Heather even called it like the impulsivity of like grabbing, reaching for your phone. And, um, I, I really try not to do that because I want to be, I mean, even just people watching, there's so much to learn mm. and, um, yeah, I hate that when I see, you know, couples at a restaurant. I mean, not in a judgmental way, but I think, man, I wonder, I don't know, just what conversation is missing or what, mm. what could be happening in that time that they're both face down, you know? Yeah. And then, and then I come to this juxtaposition because at the very same time that those things are true, it's also technology, which is facilitating this conversation and mm. facilitating anyone who's going to listen to this conversation. Yeah, and definitely. I would like to think that conversations like this help people connect with themselves or with the spirit inside of them or with the world around them in some way. Um, and so I find myself coming back to this place of like, man, I just, I don't think I can throw the baby out with the bathwater, but it's almost an impossible balance to strike because even in this podcast, I find it. I even, you know, scheduling times at work in this podcast, it can be competing for the real material relationships that are in my life, right? Whether that's my wife or my kids or other people, that even this positive form of technology can still be competitive for my attention and my time. That's a tough balance. Because <laughs> you're right. I, I have family in Iran, in the Middle East, that I would never, I would know nothing about them if it weren't for you know, social media and, um, and, and yeah, and this podcast and all the podcasts I listen to and, um, using my smartphone on my drive to listen to my audiobooks, like all of that is so, it is meaningful and it's important. And, um, yeah, I commend you, Heather, got rid of her smartphone. That's amazing. I, here I thought I was making big leaps by deleting my Facebook app and my Instagram app, but, uh, <laughs> that is a big leap too. It is. I've got, I've got my smartphone now, so don't yeah. give me too much credit. <laughs> <laughs> but it is. It's a balance for certain. And I don't know how to find it because it's designed to be an addictive process, you know, that when you are standing in line, you, I mean, you just, it's so impulsive. You grab your phone and just start opening. I mean, I can't tell you how many times since I've deleted it, have I just sat down and then immediately went, opened my phone, and then went to go find, you know, one of the two apps that aren't there. And then when I remember, I'm like, oh, I deleted it. I just put it back down. I'm like, there was nothing I went there for, right. you know, other than to just like occupy space and, and mind space, you know, I don't know. <laughs> so there's got to be a balance. I don't know what it is, but this is my start anyway. Yeah. I mean, I so resonated when Heather said that she has to like have a conversation with herself at a stoplight, like don't pull out your phone. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I have to do that yes. too. 
right? And it's like, <laughs> on the one hand, I'm so embarrassed that I have to do that. On the other hand, I'm like, no, I'm committed to doing that because I don't want to pull out my phone at the stoplight. And I've just realized that it's come to that. But like, I, mm -hmm. it's hard to admit. Yeah, that compulsion to just, oh, but I could look this up so quickly. Oh, but like, really, is it that important? Is yeah. it important for me to look up a recipe for cinnamon buns while I'm at a stoplight? No, it is not. <laughs> you know? Well, and, and so what it what it comes, you know, I'm, I've been thinking so much about this, especially, you know, because I worked for a, a tech company right before moving to the farm, right? So I went from a Silicon Valley startup that was still in, you know, Series B funding startup to, you know, a generational family farm in rural California. So total different change of pace, different change in worldview, different change in like pretty much everything you could imagine while still being in the same state of the same country. And so I, I think about this whole thing with technology and I guess what I come down to is it feels, okay, I'm going to say something that might be more than needs to be said, but it, it feels like a cop out when we pin our distraction on social media or when we pin our shortcomings as deep and flourishing humans on the oversaturation of technology in our lives. Because I use a tractor on the farm. That's technology, right? And I'm so thankful for that technology. I use technology for this podcast. I'm thankful for that. So there's all these positive uses of technology. And what I find is that as a messed up wrestling human being, I find my own self gravitated towards the destructive controlling sides of technology. And I'm not sure that's technology's fault. I think it's actually a fault, not even a fault. I think it's part of what makes me human. And when we as a society and maybe even as like a Christian church or trendy millennials or whatever subcategory you want to kind of categorize at the moment, when we push back against things like social media or technology, I wonder if that in itself is just another way of us escaping, actually examining the condition of our souls and saying, but what's happening inside really that's making me want to pick up my phone at the stoplight. And I think that is the hard conversation. And so it's so much easier to have a conversation where we just like demonize Google and Facebook and Instagram and Amazon instead of getting to this place where we actually have to deal with our own demons. That's good. I'm uh, also grateful. I mean, even working in the medical field, what in the world would we do without all of our like technology advancements? I'm so grateful. I, um, I, I guess my pushback for, um, social media and a lot of it is, is it's the design is actually to be addictive. They've designed it in the same way that they do. That's 100% true. Yeah. Yeah. They've designed it in the same way that they do like slot machines. You know, you get that little flat every time you open your app, just like every time you pull down on that lever at the slot machine, you don't know like, uh, is that little red flag on my Facebook, is it going to be a comment? Is it going to be a like? Am I going to have nothing at all? Because that's part of the addiction it is. is like, oh, is refreshing and finding like, what's the next thing that, you know, is there anything going to be there? Is it a good thing? Am I going to get a message yeah. or a comment? Because those are exciting. Likes are, eh, you know, yeah. and uh, that's the, that's the tricky part is it's, um, yes, I love seeing my family in Iran. I love that we're recording this podcast. I love that I have a working vehicle that takes me to my job. I need all this 
advanced technology, but man, it's, there's that, you know, humans are so good at taking a good thing and like kind of uh, wrecking it a bit. And um, I think the the design of the addiction is what like really bothers me and how compulsive I find. I'm like, oh, they won. Look at me going for my phone and, yeah. you know, yeah. at the stop sign. And, and I, I experienced So I, I manage like five or six different Instagram pages and like two of them are pretty much inactive. Like I haven't posted anything there in over a year. But then what Instagram does is every week it'll give mm -hmm. me three notifications on that inactive account. And all it is, is them saying, look at this thing that this one random person posted or mm -hmm. this one friend of yours followed this other person. And so it, <laughs> even when curious? I ignore it, it generates that little addictive mm -hmm. lever for me to pull. Mm -hmm. And because I'm a little bit like I'm a zero inbox kind of guy, like I like just having things clean and yeah. neat in my house and in my technology, I'm like neurologically compelled to switch over to that account just mm -hmm. to look at that dumb bot generated notification <laughs> just so it clears the queue so I can get on with my life. And it's, oh my gosh, yes, it's, it's so annoying. Yeah, I actually, so I, I can, I really see a lot of truth in what you guys are saying. I when I did get rid of my smartphone for two years and I didn't have, um, Facebook, like I didn't get on Facebook at all. Um, I got off of that because I was having the issue of comparing myself and my life to others and then being discontent with what I had. Um, and I did kind of demonize Facebook itself, you know, as the problem when the truth is like, there are responsible ways to use Facebook, you know, and yeah. it was just that I could not at that time use social media responsibly mm -hmm. um, without it causing things in my heart that I didn't like. And so um, now that I've gotten back on Facebook, now I would say a significant portion of my social interaction comes through Facebook and connecting with people in that um way because I have difficulties with getting, you know, getting out and meeting with people and, you know, it's, it can be very difficult. So I think it's funny how something that I used to, oh, I can't stand Facebook, but like God kind of turned it around and used it to um, later on be a benefit to me. And thankfully, I don't have currently the, that struggle with that comparison um, that I used to. Heather, can you tell us a little bit more about your medical journey? Sure. Um, so, uh, like I said, I've been chronically ill since I was 17, and it all started with um, um, endometriosis, and that's a condition that causes chronic pelvic pain. Um, over the last several years, like from 2003 until 2016, I had... Um, eight different surgeries for it and just experienced a lot of pain with that. Um, but it's actually kind of improved over the last couple of years. So I'm very grateful for that, but, um, that's how everything started. And then for many, many years, I knew that we were missing a piece of the puzzle, that something more was wrong, but we just couldn't figure out what it was. All my tests kept coming back normal. And, you know, I kept thinking, I know that this is not normal. My body is not functioning <laughs> the way that it should. And it's just a very frustrating time trying to 
figure out what was going on and why. And um, eventually, um, I was diagnosed with narcolepsy. And um, so that was huge for me because it was like very eye-opening, like, oh, okay, so I'm so tired and sleepy for a reason. That's, that's good. You know, it's not me just being lazy or just like not wanting to do stuff. It's like my brain cannot regulate REM. Um, that was good to know. And um, treatment for that helped somewhat, but I still felt like, okay, we're still not quite there yet on figuring out the last piece of this puzzle. So um, I went and saw a rheumatologist and they um, have diagnosed me with an autoimmune connective tissue disease called Sjogren's. And that's where your your body attacks the moisture producing glands throughout the body, um, which can cause all kinds of stuff to go haywire. And then two years ago, um, it went from, you know, just having regular fatigue and just being sleepy and tired all the time and achy and, you know, nauseous and all just kind of feeling blech all the time to actually, um, I started having trouble walking. Like the first thing I noticed actually was weakness in my neck, holding my head up. And I just blamed it on all my other conditions because I'd had, I had like six diagnoses at this point. So I just blamed things on that. Um, then I started having trouble with holding my arms up long enough to shampoo my hair in the shower. And then, um, what, then the walking became an issue. And as soon as the walking became an issue, it was like, okay, I can't ignore this anymore. Um, so I was able to go to a neuromuscular specialist and they diagnosed me with a condition called myasthenia gravis. And it's basically where like, there's nothing wrong with the muscle. There's nothing wrong with the, the signal from the brain to the muscle to move. It's where the two meet and talk to one another that's jacked up. So not enough of the signal saying, hey, move, gets through. Um, that's the Heather, you know, version. So that was... In May of 2018, since then, I have had, let me see, eight different hospitalizations um, because at its worst, this condition um, can cause weakness in the respiratory muscles where you're like literally feel so tired, like you can't even breathe and expand your chest and, you know, to continue breathing on your own. Um, and it also causes difficulties with swallowing. So whenever that those things happen, that's when I have to go to the hospital. Um, but I am on some new treatments and they are helping significantly. So that's, that's good. And um, just trying to find the balance and the new normal of what a good day looks like because it has definitely changed significantly from what it was you know, even a year ago, two years ago, three years ago of what a good day looks like. So I, um, I had to stop working last year, right around this time. And that was very difficult because I loved my job. Um, but I will say it's, it definitely has been helpful because now I'm not trying to keep up with working while managing these symptoms. Um, and it's definitely just been a journey. Chronic illness is it's hard to manage and there's a lot of layers and aspects to living with it that people would realize or think of uh, um, if you haven't experienced it. Thank you for sharing. So I'm, I'm curious because 
of course, all of us message to our children what a good day looks like, right? And it's usually starts something simple like clean up your room and be polite and respectful. But then as we grow through life, like we layer it with so many different things. So now you've been in a season of life for at least a few years now where you're having to like undo some of that layering and rebuild a new definition of a good day. So where are you? Like, what what does a good day look like now? Like, can you walk us through a little bit of that, of that deconstruction process of all maybe your childhood and young adult hopes and dreams and what that was like and then now how you're rebuilding that sense of what a good day is? Uh, yeah, so a good day before, you know, was one where I accomplished things and, you know, our culture is very accomplishment-based. Um, you know, that that's to be successful, it's you kind of measure it by your accomplishments. And that's not possible for me, because if I start measuring it by my accomplishments, that gets pretty uh, dark pretty quick. But for me, a good day is more so about maintaining balance than anything else. Because if I, on good days physically, when I am able to do a little bit more than I can another day, if I push myself too hard, then I'll have several days where I'm not able to do anything. So um, so there's a sense of having to self-restrict at times in order to conserve energy. Because I know if I, you know, get up and um, go for a walk, I know I'm not going to be able to walk normally tomorrow at all, you know, where mm. I'll have to use my cane or a walker. Mm. Um, and so balance has definitely been the key for me. Mm. And I would say the other thing is just letting go of the way that I thought my life would look and the way, and just embracing the season that I'm in and what I have been given um, has been huge. And I, I heard you mentioning that, you know, there would be one diagnosis and one piece of the puzzle. And then you had this sense of like, no, that's not, that's not quite the whole piece of the puzzle. Did you find that there was a lot of advocacy done on your behalf by your doctors or that you really had to learn what it meant to self-advocate in the medical system? What was that like? Oh gosh. Um, no, not a whole lot of advocacy on the part of my doctors. Um, in fact, I had a lot of them treat me as though I were, you know, it was all in my head, which I mean, it was neurological. So, you know, they were kind of right, but not right in the way they were, they were meaning, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I definitely had to learn to advocate for myself. Um, and my mom was pretty key in that. She's a nurse and she's always told me that you know, it's my job to know my medical history. It's my job to understand my conditions. It's my job to know what medications I'm taking and why and be a very informed patient. Um, unfortunately, though, um, sometimes doctors even look suspiciously on that, mm. you know, and um, that is a very frustrating thing when, you know, you are just trying to get help mm -hmm. and yet doctors are looking at you with that eyebrow raised like hmm are you exaggerating I don't know if I believe you you know and just feeling like um like you not only have to go through life sick but then you have to convince people that you are in fact sick 
And that is just a, an awful feeling. Yeah, it really is. I wish I could say like, oh gosh, Heather, I've never heard of such a thing happening where you have to like really advocate for yourself and, and a doctor raises eyebrows at you. I can't believe it. But it is, um, I would, I think especially for, um, people who experience, um, a lot of these autoimmune conditions. And I think we're, we still just don't know enough. Um, but you know, with heart disease, you can see, um, but you know, with heart disease, you can see it and with lightning in the blood and, um, you know, Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis and those kinds of things, we can see it and we can kind of measure it. Um, but a lot of that stuff like Sjogren's and the myasthenia gravis and, um, lupus and a lot of, uh, and even ones that we just don't even have names for yet. So we call them things like um, chronic fatigue syndrome. A large population of people just chronically don't feel good. We don't feel right. And um, and and it is just kind of like, well, uh, here, try, you know, try this anxiety medication, you know, and it's, I just, my heart hurts for, for, um, for Heather and, and people who like Heather and, um, yeah, you really have to be a self-advocate um, sometimes more than I think you should have to be, but it's so important. Um, but yeah, currently I, so I've been a nurse for um, over 13 years and um, I've, I spent the first half of that time on the inpatient side. So actual um, bedside hospital nursing, you know, 12 and a half hour shifts with a patient ill in bed. Um I did, um, a lot of it was, um, general medical and oncology. Um, we also for a time had the dialysis unit on my floor. So we had a lot of, um, of kidney failure, um, patients as well. Um, and then the, um, oncology population. So we did, you know, chemotherapy and a lot of blood product transfusions and, um, and end of life care. So, um, patients who were, um, in the active dying process. And my job was to be their nurse for that 12 and a half hours and kind of like walk alongside them on that journey. Um, and then currently for the last six or seven years, I've been doing outpatient nursing. So I do, um, what that means is we have like clinic hours. It's not a 24 hour seven hospital. We are open from, you know, 7am to like 6pm and, uh, we do, uh, radiation. And so, uh, patients who have, um, Mostly uh, cancer diagnoses come and get treated every day um, for the most part. A lot of radiation treatments are Monday through Friday. And um, so I'm the nurse there and I help um, manage symptoms and um, kind of do assessments and report to the physicians if I think something's not going well. Um, we do a lot of skincare because sometimes radiation can have an impact um, in that way and a lot of interdisciplinary um, coordination. So if I find that a patient's expressing a desire to kind of stop seeking active treatment, we can talk about hospice. I can get the social worker involved or care management, um, the dietitian, all kinds of things. Um, and that's my role. It's kind of like a, a lot of things, <laughs> but in the radiation setting. Yeah. And with that setup and introduction, you are ready for the episode that's going to drop on Thursday, where we get deep into the stuff of death and grief. For show notes or to connect with this community of seekers, visit us online at www.ofdustanddivinity.com. Join our Facebook group, which is called Of Dust and Divinity Podcast Community, and engage us on Instagram 
at of dust and divinity, all one word. Hey, and if this conversation was meaningful to you, like it was meaningful to me, leave a rating and a review on your favorite streaming platform so that more people just like us can discover this podcast and join the conversation themselves. And don't forget to subscribe. Here is a sneak peek of the next episode. Enjoy. I know when I've sat with um, somebody who is exiting this earthly life, it's really surreal, I think, to think about um, that changeover and, you know, whereas like five minutes ago, you were here, you were a human on earth and now you're motionless. And I think, but their soul, like what happened in that second is something is happening, even though I'm in a completely still and quiet room, you know, it was just so surreal to think about. And I, I think, um, I guess to answer your question directly, I, for me honoring just what would I want, you know, and there's just um, a lot to say about like maintaining someone's integrity, even at the end of their life. Are they going to complain about something? No, they're not going to complain. They can't, but it's still my, it's just my duty, you know, to honor their humanity. A huge thank you to my wife for supporting this passion project. And a great big thank you to Michelle Lim of the Everly Collective for all the brand content, including the name of this podcast and the cover art. As you go through your day, remember these words of Rainer Maria Rilke. Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. Do not seek the answers which cannot be given to you, for you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now.